Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Jim from Team Wonky. This week, in a change to our usual format podcast, academic registrar and sector historian Mike Ratcliffe reflects on the fascinating relationship between the royal family and higher education, as well as the fight between Oxford and Cambridge about who is the oldest university. Here's Mike. In the last few days, universities have been rediscovering their links with the Crown, and particularly with Queen Elizabeth. Our links go back right to the beginning of universities. Well, they're not quite to the beginning. Our first universities in England emerged. They didn't need state intervention to do that. But very soon, they were writing in to the king to ask for favours. It's clear that they became, in effect, the king's universities, particularly after they asked, in the Oxford case, for the king to suppress rival universities. And the king stepped in to get rid of Stanford University. It was clear afterwards that he recognised them as the king's university. They were doing his work. And that continued. So the universities continued to do useful things. They provided people for the court. Um, they looked after uh, his interests. Uh, and the king came to them for support and to solve tricky issues, such as when the king wanted to have a divorce. He went and asked the universities. In Scotland, the kings also decided that they would find universities useful and would intervene to help set them up. It was the king that asked the Pope to set up the University of Glasgow. In Ireland, it was the intervention of the monarch again which set the pace. Trinity College was set up with a royal charter. Queen Elizabeth wanted a university, hopefully to make the Irish more civil. And then again, it was in the Queen's name, this time Victoria, that new universities were set up. Queen's colleges, with a Queen's university to look after them, distributed around Ireland in the 19th century. Queen's colleges, using that term, were the basis of the ongoing National University of Ireland. Queen's Belfast, going its own way, at the beginning of the 20th century. When England got new universities, again, it was the monarch to whom they looked for support. UCL didn't get that support, didn't get a royal charter. It was opened by the Duke of Sussex, the slightly radical um, son of George III. The people in uh, London who wanted a, a rival to UCL, they invoked the king's name to set up King's College. But then the granting of royal charters cemented that link with the monarchy. It put things in the hands of the Privy Council, which is then the only body looking after education, but it was also the body that looked after charters. And so it, it was that um, royal charters cemented the move from a, a mere college into a university. When the North got a federal university, it was called the Victoria University. And Manchester, Liverpool and then Leeds federated to it, but it was a royal university the Victoria University. And in the 20th century, when we started to get new universities, the tradition of getting new royal charters cemented the link again. In the 50s, when we had a burst of new universities as the UGC upgraded the existing university colleges, you quickly got a royal visit to go with your royal charter. Leicester and Hull and Southampton had a royal visit to go with their new shiny charter. It linked the university to the Queen. The other links that the monarchy had, because obviously... A constitutional monarch can't do that much to link um, policy, was by the provision of chancellors to the universities. These had often been political links, and as 
the use of the Chancellor stopped being quite so political, members of the royal family took on this role. Prince Albert became the Chancellor of Cambridge University, when that was still a contentious issue, and ran the risk of not winning the election. But he served with distinction and added his thoughts on how education should develop, taking an activist role as Prince Consort. During the 20th century, many members of the royal family had distinction, serving for very long periods of time. Duke of Kent is still at the University of Surrey after 40 years. Prince Philip and Princess Anne have multiple had multiple roles, serving as Edinburgh and a wide range of other places. There is obviously a link between the head of state and the university's estate bodies, and that's cemented through these charters and through the ongoing links with the royal family. Clearly, the monarch can't be activist, but members of her family have been. Prince Philip taking on the role of supporting technology and technological innovations alongside the Queen. Clearly, we now reflect on a long period of that involvement. The royal family will continue to have links with our universities and continue to support them. And in recent days, we've seen that outpouring of how grateful we've been for the support from the Queen over her long reign. I think one of the things about university history is that um, we've always had it. We've always been interested in the in the previous history and what's been going on. So my favourite little bit is the fight between Oxford and Cambridge to be the oldest. So they set off... Um, and we, the historians know that um, there's learning happening all over the place and slowly it coalesces into universities. But we know that Cambridge gets a big shot in the arm when um, there's a big riot in Oxford and sufficient students and um, lecturers go over to Cambridge and get it going. And it's 12.09 and it's fine. Uh, and off they go. Um, but that sets up a precedence that clearly if people left Oxford to go to Cambridge, then Oxford must be older than Cambridge. All of the kind of precedence sits on who's the oldest university. So they get to the uh, 17th century, and this isn't enough. So you get this battle between these mad antiquarians as to who can be the oldest university. And they start producing books. So, I mean, this would be great, be referable stuff. Um, and they start making up quotes in order to guarantee that my university is older than your university. So Oxford kind of kicks off um, by saying that it was founded by King Alfred. Uh, so that puts it about 400 years older than it ought to be. But King Alfred founds it and they find um, a quote uh, that a guy sticks into a translation of Asser's Life of Alfred, saying that St. Grimble came over to found the University of Oxford. And he just puts it in this edition of the book. Um, and it's completely bogus, but he just shoves it in. So that proves that Oxford is founded around 800. So that makes it you know, nice and old. Um, but then, in a next edition, they decide that that's not enough. So they find an even older quote. And that says that Grimble didn't found it, he reformed it. And that it had been founded 400 years earlier than that um, by a bunch of um, Anglo-Saxon saints. Um, and they list all those saints out, and that's all very nice. And so they got a list of these people. Um, and so they're much older. So clearly they, they managed to push that back. And why is that? Well, Cambridge, as meantime, got to found that they've been founded by someone called uh, Canterbury's. Uh, and um, he's been helped by King Arthur. So that pushes them earlier than King Alfred. So... Uh, they've been founded by King Arthur, and King Arthur's gone and found Athenian philosophers uh, to come over, um, and he's made his university, and they're, so they're much older uh, than Oxford. So clearly there's then a reaction, and so Oxford seems to trump the entire thing by coming up with this ruse, and it, it, it coalesces with the idea that England must be really old and ancient. It can't just be 
you know, an accident of um, successive waves of people invading it. So they were founded by the Trojans, who had escaped the siege of Troy, and they'd sailed around the Mediterranean, and they had arrived, and they'd set up the University of Oxford. Um, and to deal with the fact that there's a small issue of there not being any Greek temples in Oxford, to prove that it's actually you know, founded 2,000 years before Christ, um, they had this extra embellishment that it was burned down by the Romans. So they're so old that they were burned down by the Romans. So this backwards and forwards in order to get precedence produces these books. So each of the universities has a published book that lists their history up to the conquest, 1066. We know that the universities could not have been in existence until at least 100 years after. But these guys have produced these fabulous books saying, we're so old that we've been going for so long. Because it, it mattered who goes first. And we're just used to saying Oxford and Cambridge. We're used to Oxbridge. And the precedence mattered because of ecclesiastical preferments and stuff like that. So off they go. So really fun that they're, you know, right from the outset, they're very keen on how ancient they are. The colleges fight for this. So this is kind of battle of who's the oldest college. So Oxford has three colleges uh, that claim it. Um, one has the oldest statutes. One has the oldest buildings, and one has the earliest foundation, and it's what makes the university, the old, you know, the college, the oldest. Is it who gave them the money, who set up the buildings, or who had the first statutes? And I think there's a kind of tie now between Merton, Balliol, and Unif to say, well, it doesn't really matter. We're definitely the oldest, the three of us. We're, you know, but again, in the listings. It was by done by age, and therefore you wanted to be at the top of the list, and therefore you know that mattered. So that notion that we have to be old, we have to show our heritage, is very important to universities. There's just a thing about pecking order. Now, clearly, if we'd have been in a country where all of our universities had all been founded at the beginning of the 19th century, maybe we wouldn't have this stuff. But the Americans have it big time. Who's the oldest university really matters. Um, how long they go back. Uh, who was the first state university? Who was the first land grant university? Who was the first university in this state? It all kind of matters and builds up over time. So this kind of competition to see who was founded before who. Um, and uh, there's a whole very, very long discussion about who's the third university in England. Um, and that's a battle between Durham and Kings and UCL as to who was properly a university earlier enough. Um, UCL was set up decently, and we'll talk about that in a bit, in a bit about really setting it up to be a, a proper, fully founded university uh, in 1826. Durham becomes a university in the 1830s, and then the you know the, so this battle backwards and forwards about who's oldest. So third university very dull because it doesn't have any of the attraction of the two oldest ones. One of the interesting things, if you think about um, the development of the English higher education sector, is how come the Scots, by the end of the 16th century, have uh, five universities and the English only have two. Aberdeen has as many universities as England has. So why does this, we end up in this very strange situation? Well, one of those key reasons is that Oxford and Cambridge get quite comfortable being universities, and they are very good at patronising the king and getting the king to stop other universities. So there are two key examples of where um, the established universities kill off the opposition that they have. So the first of these is the University of Northampton. So Northampton, which now has a perfectly nice university, uh, doesn't have any lecture theatres, but it has a perfectly nice university. Um, and its um, original university in the city uh, was founded 
way back uh, time of Henry III, um, and it's another offshoot. So um, problems at Oxford, some of the students get up and go, they coalesce in Northampton. But the problem is that it, this is a, a time of civil war, uh, and so the students there, although the university gets going... Uh, they pick the wrong side. So they pick Simon de Montfort's um, rebels. And so when the King's army comes near Northampton, uh, they use their arrows uh, um, and bows, uh, or their bows and arrows even, uh, to fire on the King's troops. So this doesn't endear the King to the students of Northampton because they're clearly rebellious and they don't like them. Uh, but meanwhile, the University of Oxford has decided, well, it's not very keen on Northampton. It's a bit close in terms of its monopoly. And it petitions the King to say, can we have this place uh, stopped? Because it, it will harm uh, our city of Oxford. And he gets the bishops on his side, uh, and therefore the king has a writ, uh, and the University of Northampton is dissolved and got rid of. Um, and the other the other attempt comes in Stamford in Lincolnshire, which sadly doesn't have a university to this day, a fine FE college, but no university. Um, and it gets another offshoot university. Uh, a group of rebellious scholars uh, get up and go. Um, migration is a technique used all over Europe to found new universities. So they migrate and off they go. Uh, but again, there's a petition from the two existing universities to have it stopped. Uh, and so they um, uh, get the king to issue another writ. Uh, and what's fun in this kind of scheme of things, is that Oxford inserts a clause into the oath that you swear to become a master. When you take your Master of Arts degree, you swear an oath. You uphold the statutes of the university, but you also uphold an oath never to teach at Stamford. So, in the oath that they then continue to swear for the next 500 years, everyone is absolutely saying that you'll only teach at Oxford and Cambridge and never at Stamford. So they have to get rid of this clause in the beginning of the 19th century because actually some people say, well, I can't teach at UCL. What becomes UCL? Because I swear on this oath that I can't possibly do this anymore. Oh, that's wildly out of date. So Oxford and Cambridge do their best to get rid of uh, other universities. The Scots um, have a much more sensible system because I think there's a whole range of different factors but travel is is more complex but they also see the value of having universities in different places so different kings found I mean effectively tiny tiny universities um, but they have much more of a local feel uh, so students from the locale go to that university uh, they don't build halls of residence people stay much more locally linked and so by the time they get to the University of Edinburgh uh, being founded. It's a town university. It's a sense that the town wants to have a university uh, and it gets a royal charter to do so. But it's it's about creating them. So because Aberdeen ends up being reformed by them setting up a different college. So there's King's College and there's Marshall College. Uh, they set up a different college in the same city. Um, and so Aberdeen officially has two universities until they're united in the 19th century. Hence, the Aberdeen has as many universities as England has um, uh, anomaly. So we get into a, kind of a weird situation in terms of suppressing competition. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The 
the first European university, the thing that we think of, now there's a, a debate about whether um, African and um, Middle Eastern uh, cities had things that are effectively universities and they I, you know, seriously antedate the European university. But the thing that we think of as a university, the universitas, is a guild. And it's first set up as a guild uh, by a bunch of uh, law students who've gathered in Bologna. Uh, and their problems are um, issues with the townspeople who keep trying to fleece them, um, but also issues with the people who are teaching them. So the university, the guild of people in that city, um, is formed of the students. So it's a guild of the students. Universitas means the collection of everybody in a place doing something. You can have a universitas of cobblers. In this case, it's a universitas of students. So they set up a guild and it has a set of rules. And the rules are relatively straightforward for the students. Um, there's a set of rules about not fighting each other. But apart from that, it's very limited in terms of student regulations. All the regulations are all about the staff. So they're all about um, the staff are supposed to uh, turn up on time. There's some very strict rules about they have to start when they have to start the lectures and when they have to finish them and if the lecture's going on for too long the students are obliged to get up and go to show that their displeasure at the uh, uh, at this kind of tardiness um, there's clear rules about following the curriculum not skimping on the hard bits making the students making sure the students understand the curriculum properly um, and not getting into uh, any of the dubious uh, you know, teaching the coasting bits so they've got to make that clear their staff have to swear allegiance to the student's rector um, they uh, aren't allowed out of town without asking permission to the students uh, they have to get permission to do that and obviously the way the staff get paid is through the student fee so yeah there's a clear economical link but the students have all these rules unfortunately when we get unfortunately when you get to northern European universities, they're more theological in focus. And so it's the bishop's chancellor who takes charge of organisation. And these become master's universities. So northern European universities are master's and scholar's universities, whereas a group of the Italian and southern European universities are student universities. So you get this, this dichotomy of organisational structures. We don't get a proper student's university in, in, in England, certainly. There's a sense of hybridness in the Scots universities with their rector, but it's nothing of the same kind of power that we get from uh, Southern Europe. So that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, remember, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you in where you work ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do pop over to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Mike, uh, everyone at Team Wonky that makes the show happen. And until next week, when we're back with our usual format, stay wonky. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.